And now I invite you to stand for a reading of God's word. This morning I'll be reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, beginning with verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear for the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Yaroslav Pelikan was a theologian and church historian. For more than 40 years, he served as the professor of church history at Yale University. He was a widely published author. He wrote more than 30 books. He's regarded as one of the greatest church historians of our day. And after all of his accomplishments, everything he had done in the world of academia, every contribution he made as a teacher, as a professor and a historian, it is believed that on his deathbed, as he looked back on his life, he said these words, if Christ is risen, nothing else matters. And if Christ is not risen, nothing else matters. What is he saying? You see, I think that Yaroslav Pelikan at the end of his life with a moment of clarity was able to recognize something that is fundamentally true. That there is no more important truth in all of the world than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nothing else matters If Jesus Christ did indeed rise from the dead, then nothing else matters. Everything must change. But if he did not rise again, then as we will see this morning, we as Christians are most of all to be pitied. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the defining moment in all of human history. Christ has indeed risen from the dead. And what I want you to see this morning is because of that reality, nothing will ever be the same. Everything must change. Our hopes and fears, our understanding of the world, even our purpose in life, nothing can remain the same. And so this morning, as we continue our sermon series on the resurrection life, what I want you to see is this. The resurrection is true and it changes everything. The first way I want you to see that the resurrection changes everything is this, that the resurrection is peace. 
And so if you have a Bible, or if you have the bulletin there in front of you, I want you to turn to John chapter 20. We'll begin with verse 19. This is what John tells us. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, this is still resurrection day. It's Sunday, the first day of the week, the same day that Jesus rose from the dead. The same day that the stone was rolled away from the empty tomb. The same day that Peter, John, and Mary Magdalene went and saw that the tomb was empty. The same day that Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene and spoke her name, Mary. We're told that on this day, the disciples that evening were gathered together in a room with the doors locked. It's likely that this is the exact same room, the upper room that they had just gathered together just a few days ahead, a few days earlier when they gathered for the last supper. A lot has happened since that night. They watched their leader, their rabbi, their teacher be arrested, be tried and beaten. And they watched him die on a cross. And so now they're gathered together in this room. The doors are locked. That's an important detail. Not only because we're about to be told that Jesus is going to miraculously appear risen from the dead in the middle of a locked room, but it's important because John tells us why they locked the doors. They locked the doors because they were afraid. They were fearful because of everything that they had just witnessed. You see, I think one of the most common misconceptions that we have when we read the Bible is that we assume that the disciples fully understood the gospel when Jesus was alive. But the truth is they had no idea. They could not truly understand the crucifixion as it happened before their eyes. And they could not have possibly anticipated that Jesus would have actually rose again from the dead. And so here they are. I want you to put yourself in their shoes. Can you imagine the fear they must have felt? With all they had witnessed over these three years, the feeling that they must have felt in the presence of Jesus, that feeling of, of being with him, being loved by him, that feeling that they were beginning to maybe sort of wrap their hearts and minds around it. They were in the very presence of God. And, and now all of a sudden, all of that's been taken away. They watched Jesus be murdered on a cross, publicly humiliated and crucified. And now they're wondering what happens next. What happens to me? After all, if that could happen to Jesus, what are they going to do to me? And so here they are, afraid and anxious, huddled together in a locked room. And then all of a sudden, Jesus appears. We're told, verse 19 continues, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. What I want you to know is that this was much more than just a common greeting. 
The word that the Bible uses for peace here is the Greek equivalent for the Hebrew word shalom. In other words, Jesus rose from the dead and the very first thing he says to his disciples is, shalom be with you. This is much more than a pleasantry, but this is nothing less than a proclamation of victory that the kingdom of God has come. When you and I think of peace, we typically think of absence. When you want peace in your life, and I ask you this morning, do any of you really want peace? I bet you do, perhaps now more than ever. When we want peace, when we crave peace, when we think of peace, we usually think of the absence of anxiety, the absence of stress or conflict. But the peace of shalom is a presence. It's the presence of God as he comes into his kingdom. In the Bible, the idea of shalom is every kind of good and blessing that comes in the kingdom of God. It's that when God is on his throne, when he is reigning and ruling over all things and all people, and when you submit yourself to his rulership, there is shalom, there is peace, It's a kind of human flourishing where we experience all the blessings of the kingdom of God. Shalom is nothing less than his kingdom come to earth as it is in heaven. And so when Jesus rose from the dead and declared to his disciples, peace, shalom be with you, he was blessing them. He was finally declaring what they had long been waiting for, that the kingdom of God was now here, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and in his victory, peace can finally be had. And so Jesus is proclaiming peace, shalom. He's risen. His kingdom has come and his kingdom will now spread over all the earth. One theologian put it this way. He said, Christ shalom on Easter evening is the complement of his, it is finished on the cross. For the peace of reconciliation and life from God is now imparted. Shalom, he said, accordingly is supremely the Easter greeting. Christ is risen so that you might have real, tangible peace. And so let me ask you something. Do you want that? Could you use a little peace in your life right now? With all that is going on around us, with a pandemic, with the economy, with the crash of oil prices, could you use a little peace? With all that's going on in the chaos of your homes, those of you who have little children and families and none of them are in school, could you use a little peace right now? Those of you who do not have families, 
those of you who've never felt more alone, could you use a little peace right now? You see, every human being on the planet wants peace. We crave it, whether there's a pandemic or not. You see, because peace, the idea of shalom has been hardwired into our Imago day. We want peace because that's how God originally created the world before the fall. But with the fall, with our sin, with our rebellion against God and his kingdom, you and I now seek peace by building our own little kingdoms. You see, we want the blessings of the kingdom of God without the king. We want shalom without the kingdom. And so everything that you and I do is some kind of feeble attempt at peace. And yet these little kingdoms that we build and these little feeble kings that we chase never quite deliver, do they? You see, there can be no real peace. There can be no shalom without the kingdom, without God's kingdom. And the thing that separates the kingdom of God from every other earthly kingdom that we might pursue is this, that our king, the king of kings, Jesus Christ, died for his rebellious subjects. And on the third day, our king rose again so that his victory over every enemy, over the enemy of every sin, over our greatest enemy, death itself, his victory might now be our peace. Christ is risen. He is risen for us that we might have peace. The apostle Paul put it this way in the book of Colossians. Colossians 1 verse 18, he says, Jesus is head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, that he might be supreme, that he might be king of kings and Lord of lords. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Jesus Christ was crucified for you. Jesus Christ rose again for you. And now our risen Savior King, Jesus, is speaking this blessing over you. Peace be with you. Shalom be with you. May you have real resurrection peace. But not only has the resurrection changed everything and turning chaos into peace, but the resurrection is also our truth. It's the second thing I want you to see this morning. The resurrection is true. I want you to look with me at verse 20. We're told that when Jesus had said this, peace be with you, he showed them his hands and his side. Now, I might imagine that for some of you, this seems obvious to talk about when we talk about the resurrection, but I don't think we can say it enough. The resurrection is true. 
It really happened. And I think sometimes we take this fact for granted. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, fully God and fully man, he really died. He really died. He was crucified. He was killed. He really was buried. He was laid in a tomb for three days. And on the third day, Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead. He rose bodily, physically. Jesus Christ, who was dead, now lived and breathed again. There is no peace. There is no shalom. There is no hope. There is not even Christianity unless that is true. And it is true. Jesus Christ died and rose again. And so as Jesus proclaimed, declared, announced to his disciples, peace be with you, he showed his hands where the nails went through. And he showed them his side where the spear went in as if to authenticate and authorize his proclamation of peace. His hands and his side were the first pieces of historical evidence that the resurrection really did happen and that it is verifiably true. And there are witnesses. Apostle Paul gives some of the first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians 15. You can turn there in your Bible or you can get out your bulletin. We used it as our profession of faith this morning. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. Paul said, For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now scholars believe that this is one of the earliest creeds of the Christian church. Notice what Paul says at the very beginning. He says, now I deliver to you what I received In other words, this was a creed that was already in the early church being passed down. It was being shared. And what does this creed say? That Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. How do we know? How can we trust that this creed is true? Well, Paul tells us because there were eyewitnesses. Paul tells us that the risen Christ appeared to Cephas. That's Peter. This morning, we're looking at how Jesus appeared to the disciples in this locked room. Later, we're told that he appeared to more than 500 at one time. Then he appeared to James, his brother, who was likely a skeptic until he saw his own brother, Jesus, risen from the dead. 
He also appealed to the apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. Why does any of this matter? Because this simple creed shows us that from the earliest days of Christianity, it was widely believed that Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead. That this was not theoretical. This was not just some theological construct. This is not a philosophical idea or just a metaphor. No, they believed that Jesus Christ really did physically, bodily rise from the dead. And even the greatest of skeptics, the greatest skeptical scholars will recognize the earliest believers in the earliest days of the church believed in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. One of those skeptics is named Bart Ehrman. He's a notable New Testament scholar, knows the Bible backwards and forwards better than you or I probably ever will, but he doesn't believe. He is outspoken about his agnosticism. And yet this is what he says about the eyewitnesses. He says, what is certain is that the earliest followers of Jesus believed that Jesus had come back to life in the body, that it was a body that had real bodily characteristics. It could be seen and touched. It had a voice that could be heard. Even skeptics must deal with the fact that the earliest believers witnessed Jesus physically rise from the dead. What do you do with that this morning? What's most amazing about all of this, especially the book of John and the other gospel writers, is that the disciples were not actually the first eyewitnesses. This morning, yes, we're looking at Jesus appearing to the disciples, but they weren't the first. Last week, we saw in the gospel of John how Jesus first appeared to Mary Magdalene. Now, In our modern understanding, that might not seem like a big deal to you, but it's an incredibly big deal. Because in those days in Jewish culture, women could not be trusted in court. In fact, their testimony was seen as not credible. It could not be used in the court of law. And so for the gospel writers to clearly say that the first eyewitnesses, the key witnesses to the resurrection were women, would have been unthinkable if they were making the story up. But because we see that Jesus first appeared to these lesser viewed people back in those days, recognizing that women are made in the image of God just as much as men, giving them the worth and dignity that they so very much deserve. And by doing so, calling into question what would ordinarily be practiced in the court of law, we can know that they're not making the story up. Because if this was a fabrication, they would have never picked women to be the key witness. Why does all of this matter? Well, these eyewitnesses, they remind us that the resurrection of Jesus is not theoretical. It's not metaphorical, Resurrection of Jesus is true. And it's the kind of truth that changes everything. Right now, many people are wondering how the coronavirus is fundamentally changing our world. 
What will everything be like when things go back to normal? Will there be a normal ever again? Brothers and sisters, friends, what I want you to understand this morning is that even more than this current moment, the resurrection of Jesus Christ has fundamentally changed everything. It's the kind of truth that is now the turning point of all of history. It's the hinge that the doors of humanity now turns. It is the thing that is the most fundamental, most crucial truth that any person can now build their life upon. Several hundred years ago, a philosopher named Rene Descartes tried to identify what's the most basic truth that we could understand as human beings. What is that fundamental idea that we could base all of life on? And this is what he came up with. I think, therefore I am. Now I know that very few of us spend a lot of time just thinking like Descartes. But the truth is we all kind of have these fundamental truths that we build our lives upon, whether we really think about it or not. And so we live life as if to say, I work, therefore I am. I love, therefore I am. I'm a mother, therefore I am. I'm a friend, therefore I am. I'm successful, therefore I am. I have these things, therefore I am. I want you to see this morning is that the resurrection is the kind of truth that completely upends all of that. Christ is risen, therefore I am. This morning, where is your hope? What truth are you building your life upon? All of these lesser truths will only crumble under the weight of life and the weight of sin. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. It is the kind of truth that changes everything. The kind of hope that all of life is built upon. So the third and final way that the resurrection changes everything, the resurrection is good news. I want you to look with me now at verse 21. Verse 21, Jesus says to his disciples again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. In the words of modern day theologian, John Krasinski, we could all use a little good news right now. And there is no greater news than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the kind of news that we cannot keep to ourselves, but it's the kind of news that we have to tell others about. And so Jesus says to his disciples, as the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. How did the father send Jesus? Around 40 times in the gospel of John, Jesus refers to himself as the sent one. Let me just give you a couple examples. John 8, 42, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. And there's probably not more famous verse about God sending Jesus than John 3, 16. For God so loved, his, loved the world that he gave his only son 
that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God sent Jesus to the world for the salvation of sinners like you and me. And now Jesus is saying, in the same way that God sent me, I am sending you. If you think about it, that is staggering. Jesus is saying, look, God sent me for the salvation of the world. I died and rose again. And now in the same way he sent me for the salvation of the world, I am sending you. This is what it means to be Christians, to be little Christs, to be his ambassadors, to be his representatives, to be sent out by the one who God sent for the salvation of the world. How could we ever fulfill such a calling? Well, I think John gives us a couple ways that the resurrection enables us to be sent out. Transformation and proclamation. And neither one is possible without the person and power of the Holy Spirit. And so in verse 22, as Jesus said this, I'm sending you out. He breathed on them and said this, receive the Holy Spirit. This is a foretaste of Pentecost. Jesus is equipping his disciples with the Holy Spirit in order to send them out as his ambassadors, his representatives. Jesus breathed in again when he rose from the dead. And now he is breathing out on you and me the power of the resurrection, the breath of life, and the person of the Holy Spirit. One of my favorite verses about how the resurrection is directly tied to the Holy Spirit is Romans 8, verse 11. This is what Paul says. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is gospel transformation. It's the power of the resurrection in and through us that the same spirit that rose Jesus Christ from the dead now dwells in all who believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Is that true of you this morning? Have you received the good news of the gospel that Jesus Christ died and rose again for your salvation? If you have, then the Holy Spirit has been breathed out on you. That kind of resurrection power is now at work transforming you, conforming you into the image of Jesus. And so as his ambassadors, we now represent the power of the gospel in our world. This is what it means to extend the transforming presence of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus to Dallas and to our world, to embody the resurrection to be living testimonies that the gospel works, that despite ourselves and our sin, the gospel works, that the resurrection is true and has the power to transform the most hardened sinner. But you see, the resurrection does not just give us the mission of transformation. Where we'll end this morning. 
the resurrection gives us the mission of proclamation. I want you to look at verse 23. Jesus says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, as you hear those words from Jesus, you're probably wondering, wait a minute. No one has the power to forgive sins except for Jesus. How do we have now the power to forgive? Well, I want you to look again at verse 23. Jesus says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. In other words, they're already forgiven. In the Greek here, it's actually the past tense. So it's called past perfect tense. Now, I know very few of you are English majors, so let me explain that to you. All it means is that something has happened in the past that has a present reality. In other words, what Jesus is saying is if I have empowered you as my sent ambassadors to declare forgiveness because forgiveness has already been purchased. Something has happened in the past that has a present reality. Jesus died and rose again and all who believe in him now have forgiveness for their sins. So Jesus is now saying by the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm sending you out to proclaim the good news, the good news of forgiveness that is only made possible because of the resurrection. If you have tasted the good news of the resurrection, you cannot keep it to yourself because it is the greatest news that the world could ever hear. The kind of news that you cannot possibly keep to yourself, but you would tell your neighbors and your friends and your coworkers and your family members that Jesus Christ is risen. He's risen for you and he's risen for me. There is no greater news than the resurrection of Jesus. And it's the kind of news that we have to tell. The resurrection is peace in a world that is filled with anxiety and fear. That the resurrection is true in a world that is now searching for answers. That the resurrection is good news, the kind of news that changes everything. And so this morning, I invite you wherever you are, wherever God has placed you, to join in the resurrection chorus, to proclaim from the rooftops to the ends of the earth that Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And the resurrection changes everything. Please join me in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for sending us your son, Jesus, to be the sent one who died and rose again for our salvation. And now we thank you for sending us the Holy Spirit that now empowered by the Holy Spirit, we might be sent out to our neighborhoods, to our neighbors, our friends, and our family members, especially during this time, to speak, to live, to boldly proclaim the wonderful good news that Jesus Christ is risen. We thank you for this wonderful truth and we pray that it would sink deeply into our bones. Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. Amen.